0: Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire
1: change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon.
2: Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Harold Neerland. Harold is the president of Autism Europe, an international association whose main objective is to advance the rights of autistic people and their families and help them improve their quality of life. Originally from Norway, Harold is also a father of a young autistic woman. In today's conversation, we discuss Harold's daughter's strengths, interests, and living situation, how Harold assesses her quality of life, the level of awareness and services available in Norway, inclusion versus integration. Describing autism based on the level of need rather than diagnostic criteria. Autism Europe's mission, policy work, and research initiatives. Why researchers and practitioners need to work together. Bringing mental and somatic health to the forefront of the political discussion. And objectives Harold wants to complete before the end of his term. In this episode, discover what's possible when you share the end goal. To learn more about Harold and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at autismpodcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Harold Neerland. Hello, Harold. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Could you please briefly introduce yourself?
1: The key salient point is probably the fact that I'm a father to a young woman. She's 25 years old with uh, infantile autism. Apart from that, I'm a past president of the Autism Society of Norway. I'm also the current president of uh, Autism Europe. And I've been involved with um, autism, I guess, for as long as my daughter has been alive. So that's uh, 25 years now. In various uh, roles, I guess, Uh, been part of some advisory groups for the uh, health and social affairs departments in, in the government of Norway. And I guess that's the gist of most of it, actually.
2: Okay, great. So let's talk about your daughter. What are some of her interests and her strengths?
1: Well, her biggest strength is actually the fact that she proves me wrong every time she does anything. Uh, (laughs) She's really into How to Train Your Dragon, uh, animated movies. Mm -hmm. So her uh, apartment has a lot of stuffed animals from that and a lot of toys from that and a lot of movie uh, posters from that. So I think that's her special interest anything else, it's, she's really into, well, she needs a lot of physical activities to feel good. If we don't make her physically active, she basically gets antsy and becomes a little bit more difficult to handle.
2: I see. Okay. And you mentioned her apartment. Does she live alone?
1: She lives alone with individual, uh, well, basically what it is, is something we call a BPA. It's a uh, personal assistance system where she directs the activities, but she has support 24-7. She goes to a day center during the day, but when she's in the apartment, she has one-on-one all the time. She has somebody sleeping there during the night. So there's always somebody there. And that is a service that the local authorities provide. Oh, They actually pay for the assistance uh, salaries, whereas we organize the staffing and the scheduling and everything in the apartment is organized uh, by the family. Okay. It's a system that has been um, available for people with cognitive disabilities for about four, maybe five years in Norway. Okay. That's sort of from her perspective, it's a brilliant thing. Mm-hmm. From the parents' perspective, there is a fair amount of of work associated with administrating the, the system. So the experience, I guess, is a little bit different from where you're standing on whether you're looking at it from her point of view or you're looking at it from our point of view. I see. But generally, I would say it's a good system. Maybe not something I would recommend for everybody, but In our case, it works really well.
2: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So she has a lot of autonomy in the sense of being able to make decisions at home.
1: Yeah. It's actually one of the key challenges when it comes to staffing, and that is to make people understand that she's actually the one that makes the decisions.
2: Oh, so people have a hard time with that?
1: Well, no, not necessarily, but I guess it comes from the fact that, that the people that are sporting are typically health professionals and they have a sort of ingrown attitude of protecting. So they, they see dangers where it may not be dangerous. The concept of she should be able to try out whatever she wants to try out. If she gets hurt in the process, well, that's sort of what everybody else does. It's normal to screw up and get hurt when you try something. So in our minds, we shouldn't remove that experience from her.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: I think... One of the key elements for us is the fact that she's making the decisions and she gets to choose what she wants to do. She's minimal verbal, so it, there is a challenge in, in actually understanding what she wants to do all the time. But generally, when you get to know her, it's fairly simple to understand what what she wants to do, whether she wants more food or whether she uh, wants to go for a walk or if she wants to uh, be on her own for a while. Because she can always always go to her own room and close the door and you know she doesn't want anybody in there. Yeah. And if you're visiting, she will tell you when she has had enough and you should leave. Mm Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is a bit of um, learning her language, I guess, more than going into it saying that she can't speak.
2: Right. Does she use an AAC? No. Okay.
1: It's, um, her sister says that for somebody without language, she sure talks a lot. So <laughs> she, uh, she uses her entire body. She uses uh, her facial expressions She leads you by the hand and she puts together uh, two or three word sentences that indicates what she wants. Mm -hmm. And particularly when it comes to the planning, she's very involved in her planning for her days and her weeks. She basically points out what she wants to do in specific days. And it's up to us to say, okay, well...
2: Using like a picture board or
1: no actually she just uh she goes and points to uh, she has calendar on the
0: Ah, on her wall
1: she goes to the calendar and points to the date and um, says where she wants to go if she wants to go to a nearby town or if she wants to go shopping or if she wants to go for a train ride things like that Hmm. the problem we have is that it isn't necessarily always feasible to do what she wants. So there's the ensuing discussion is an interesting uh, experience. She doesn't necessarily give in easy, put it that way.
2: Right. Okay. So you said this is something that is provided by or funded by the government. Yep. Okay. And it's um, available to her for... Unlimited number of years? Yeah. That's great.
1: Essentially, the the legislation in Norway says that the local authority has to provide, the statement is, roof over your head. That, That says nothing about quality or anything like that. But it's a fact that the local authorities don't have sufficient housing for everybody with disabilities so they they basically like it if you come up with your own solution so what we did was we bought her that her apartment essentially what we did was give her an interest free loan to buy the apartment and then she pays us back in monthly installments based on what she can afford from her pension keeping in mind that she needs money to Pay for all the uh, utilities, the internet, and all the other sort of normal expenses, and still be able to put away money. All of that is taken into account when we uh, set up the deal.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And what does she do at her day program?
1: Uh, uh, Not much in terms of, of work, it's activities like. Going for hikes, being active in the gym, listening to music, doing small little crafts projects, things like that. Okay. Generally, making sure that she's active throughout the day. And obviously, there's times when she gets too tired and has to rest and stuff like that. But generally, she uh, is fairly active. They got one day a week where she goes horseback riding. There's a a small little pool there that she can go swimming in if she wants to. And I think that is actually the the key word, wants to. Right. It it all centers around what she wants.
2: If you were were to ask her if she's happy or what she thinks of her quality of life, how do you think she would respond?
1: I think she would say that she's happy. I think she would say that she's got a good quality of life. It's very difficult to assess that. Yeah. In so far as she wouldn't put words to it, but you can see it in her general disposition. She's happy. She's laughing. She's actually known as the happy one in her activities center.
0: Mm. <laughs> so,
1: that's as good an indication as you could actually get from a parent's point of view.
2: Right. Well, that's great.
1: But one should mention also that we are quite lucky in so far uh, that the local authorities has a fairly good understanding of autism. Mm-hmm. And therefore understand what type of services she needs and understands what we as parents is trying to um, achieve. Mm -hmm. That's not a given in all local communities throughout the country.
0: Oh, okay.
1: The quality and the the access to services is is very varied throughout the country. It's actually an element of awareness of the... Well, one thing is the awareness of, of... autism, but it's also access to services because the services tends to be specialized. And therefore, in smaller communities, they don't necessarily have those services or that knowledge, which again, sort of is seen in in some interesting ways. You will find that the prevalence of, of autism varies throughout the country. Mm. So it's not a uniform way of looking at it. And that's basically because in smaller communities, they don't have the uh, ability to do the diagnostics and, and actually set a, a diagnose. That tends to be more easily done in the larger centers. So Unfortunately, The services are very varied throughout uh, the country.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So in some of these communities, I guess, in the more rural areas, you would say, what is their understanding of autism? Do they think that it's, yeah, what, what what do they think it is?
1: I think when it comes to awareness, it's a multifaceted question, really. People are aware of the fact that there's a diagnosis called autism. But where the awareness is not existing is what constitutes a good service. How do you approach helping somebody with autism? How do you set up services that are high quality for people with autism? There's a almost what I would call a, a Rainman syndrome. Uh, Sometimes that you the the concept of every person with autism is savant, which Mm -hmm. everybody knows that it's not true. But it's also the element that for people with good verbal skills, good communication skills, there's an attitude to say, "Well, you can speak. You can. You're doing well in school. You don't really need any help." and not actually understanding that even with those skills, you need help. So that, that's an element that, that is very difficult to get across, particularly when it comes to the school situation.
2: Hmm. Yeah. And I think there's the other side too, where people who are non-speaking are automatically put in this category of not being intelligent. And then maybe not given opportunities to actually learn something.
1: Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's sort of, when we started out, I said that her special skills is to prove me wrong all the time. Yeah. Because for somebody who doesn't use the verbal language, she is bilingual, probably trilingual, and has again, rudimentary understanding of a couple of more languages. So to say that, that just because you don't speak, you can't learn, is just a fallacy.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So Harold, would you say that there's a significant parent network in your community?
1: There is a, well, first of all, there's, there's a, an autism society in Norway. Currently, we're about eight and a half thousand members. Oh, wow. So in that sense, yes, there is a strong community. Mm-hmm. But again, Norway tends to be, or not just tends to be, Norway is long on country and short on people. So there's there's uh, areas that you might be the only person with uh, autism in a day's travel. Wow! But the fact that the society is uh, has so many members indicates that that yeah there is a a a good community in here.
2: Yeah, that's great because you know usually. When we see change in policies and with government, it comes from the parents who mobilize to, hmm. to actually make the change happen.
1: Well, um, the diagnosis of, of uh, autism came into the diagnostic manual in 1980, somewhere around there. Our society has been operating since 1965, and it has uh, affected how Norway has built their services hmm. Norway doesn't have a specific autism legislation, but it has a very good disability legislation. Where the um, parents is trying to focus and making changes is towards the educational system, the understanding of inclusion versus Integration. There's always been a lot of talk about integrating people with autism into the classroom. Whereas we're more in favor of including them, not integrating them, because integrating basically means that you're doing it on everybody else's premises and not on the person. And I think that's been the one thing that probably is lacking in the understanding of autism, not just in Norway, but generally the fact that the approach has to be individual. Mm -hmm. What worked for us, I can tell people what we did. I'm not sure if I want to recommend it because it has put a lot of stress on the family. It was worth it in in hindsight, but then again, we're what we would call resourceful family to university educated uh, parents and we're used to thinking outside the box and and try different things. Hmm. If you don't have that background, you might find it to be a lot more stressful to try what we have tried.
0: Hmm.
1: And also the element of trying means that you have to evaluate how things are doing and stop when you see that there isn't any effect of it. And then there's the question of what are you actually trying to achieve? And When our daughter got the diagnosis, she got it when she was about 16 months, 18 months. Mm. At that point, we were lucky to meet with some of the uh, best professionals in the field in Norway and on -on one-on-one and sit and talk to them about what we should do. And that was very useful for us because we, we learned to, number one, see it from her side and not necessarily from what we wanted. We also learned to plan ahead and and actually have a long-term plan.
0: Hmm.
1: What's her life at the age of five? What's her life at the age of 12? What's her life at the age of 18? How do we see her life when she moves away from home and have an idea of where we wanna go? And I have to say that that it's been a family thing. It's been my wife and me, but it's also been her sister who's been very active in setting those goals and actually challenging each other saying, is this really important for her or is it important for us?
0: Hmm.
1: So for our family, it's always been what's good for her. What's, what would she think? Right. And yeah, quite naturally it's going to end up being a guesswork, but, uh, As I said, when you see her smile, that's uh, sort of an indication you're doing something, right?
2: Yes. Harold, I want to go back to something you said about inclusion and integration. Could you elaborate more on what you mean by integration is working within other people's premises and inclusion being on what the person needs?
1: Yeah. I guess... The best way of of, of, uh, describing it is taking a look at a classroom setting.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Inclusion means that you're in that classroom when it benefits you. It allows you to leave when the, the setting doesn't benefit you again and have your training in a different setting. Integration is that you are in that classroom and following the education as everybody else does. Arguably, with somebody to help you, but we all know that an additional resource in a classroom doesn't matter how much is dedicated to one person, it's going to end up being helping everybody. So, that's a setting where the framework is a traditional classroom setting.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Whereas inclusion is, will it benefit me? Will I think this is fun?
0: Hmm.
1: Somebody with infantile autism coming into a classroom with the noise level that could be there is asking for trouble. Whereas including them, for instance, in say the music lessons, And let them be part of of that if they think that's fun. For our daughter, it was the gym where she could run around and be active. Mm -hmm. It, It requires that you take the time to educate her classmates. Probably doesn't hurt to educate the parents also, but generally you will find that children are a lot more inclusive in themselves. So, for us, trying to explain that yes, she does have autism, and no, she's not dangerous, and you should just let her do what she wants to do has been a, an important element.
2: Mm-hmm. Got it. Thank you for clarifying. And I also just want to point out you refer to her autism as infantile autism. Is that because of when it was, when the symptoms were?
1: Uh, actually,
2: onset or
1: no, it is actually the original definition of the uh, of uh, autism. I know it's sometimes referred to as child autism, but it is actually the the original definition of autism as it occurred in the early diagnostics uh, manual. And everything like that has been changed since ICD-10. Uh, so there's an element in that too that, that uh, I, I, I guess one, one should recognize that the diagnostic criteria and the diagnostic uh, grouping has changed.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And that's also very important to have in mind. In many ways, it's positive before because nowadays, or the new diagnostic uh, manual focuses much more on how you function, what you need help to. Do you need a little help? You need a lot of help.
2: Right, but the different levels of support. Mm -hmm.
1: And I I think that's actually a better way of looking at it because you focus on help instead of actually the diagnostic.
0: Hmm, Uh uh-huh.
1: When I speak about autism, I'm I'm sort of like you go through what it is and all of what the diagnostic manual says and this and that. And at one point you say, okay, now you know what autism is, so let's forget it. Because it isn't interesting what autism is. What's interesting is the person. What does that person need? How do you treat that person? How do you help her? the moment you put a the label autism on something on somebody, I'm afraid that it triggers so many preconceived notions. People has this image in their head of what this thing is. And it's, it's like, okay, you fit into this box, but if there's one thing autism never does is fit into a box. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: It's all over the place. And, That's the part that that is frustrating, actually, to to see that people don't see the person. They see a diagnosis. Hmm. And that is really frustrating. You should see the person first and foremost. And the diagnosis should give you an indication of of the fact that that person needs some assistance in one way or another.
2: Right. Yeah. I agree. So, Harold, I want to transition to talking about Autism Europe. First, could you describe what the organization's mission is for our listeners who are not familiar?
1: Uh, Well, it's kind of funny because every autism organization I've come across has the same mission, and that is to improve the lives of people with autism. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh that's the simple answer to your uh, question. On a more serious level our mission is to spread information on autism, in particular what's um, a good practice. What should you think of and also the fact that Autism Europe is, is um, well, it, it has members in 23 countries in Europe right now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: plus a couple of countries outside of Europe also. And that brings into play the, the cultural aspects of autism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It is sort of like if you're in the rural areas of, say, Romania, And trying to explain to people what autism is and what you should do and how you should approach living with somebody with autism. You might as well come from Pluto. You're from a different planet. They have no way of relating to what you're saying because they don't have the services you're talking about. They're having a different cultural setting. So... Autism Europe is trying to share and trying to communicate out best practices and how to deal with autism. And we're also heavily, well, face it, we're we're a political organization. We work towards the EU uh, and towards the European Parliament in trying to get legislation in place and trying to get the European Parliament to enforce their member states to follow their um, legislation and, and improving services. Autism Europe also has legal standing in front of the Council of Europe. So we're actually capable of bringing legal actions towards the country in Europe. Okay. And we have had a landmark decision where France was found to be in breach of their uh, responsibility for children based on our complaint to the council. Okay. So it is a political organization, also. Mm -hmm. And the third leg that we're uh, standing on is research. Every three years, we arrange a um, conference. I've been doing that since 1985, actually.
2: Okay. That's actually where we met last October at the one in Poland.
1: Yeah, in Krakow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that came about when the founding fathers, for lack of better words, of the organization got uh, hold of a few well-known scientists and arranged a conference to get information on autism, and it's built on to that. So it's it's grown to be the uh, preeminent meeting place of researchers, practitioners, people with autism, and parents on, and caretakers of people with autism, and we're, we're quite proud of that because it, it, without research, without scientists, we won't be moving forward. So it is an, a very important element in what we do, this thing about getting to see what's being researched, see how we can turn it into practice, and see how that can help people. Mm-hmm. So, it is, it is very important for us to have contact with various uh, research groups and, and, and societies.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that was, it was interesting at the conference to hear about all the research that's going on in different countries. And I think I was also reminded of how we really need to work together. I'm a professional in the field. I'm not a researcher, I'm not a parent, I'm not autistic. So that's mm-hmm. where I'm coming from. But I was I was seeing, you know, some tension at the conference between some family members who were feeling like the researchers were just so focused on the science and you know, some researchers maybe getting defensive and I was like there's this disconnect. It seems like we really should just be working together.
1: As you mentioned, that that tension has always been there, but there's multiple contact surfaces within the uh, autism community that that has that tension. There's a tension between parents and self-advocates. There's a tension between researchers and families. Um, You're doing research on mice to find out what autism is. How can you utilize that element to improve the daily life, but the fact is that without that type of research, you won't be able to draw conclusions and see where or how you should change how you're doing things. You need to understand why things work. That's always a, 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 an element that's extremely difficult to accept when you're looking for answers.
2: Yes. And I understand families who are feeling maybe impatient and they want solutions now.
1: Yeah, Uh, there's, as a parent, when you first learn that your child has a diagnosis, you start looking for information and there's so many therapies out there. There's cognitive behavioral therapies, there's ABA, there's, and, and how does a parent know which therapy you should go for? How do you know that what you're trying to do will actually help? We are Autism Europe has two, well, three really key element that we're trying to build into everything. The first one is Any approach has to be based on knowledge. So a knowledge-based approach to how you do things. We also would like to see the services being community-based. Growing up, you're going to be living in a community and it's important that it's that community that you get your services from. So you don't have to travel far to get any services. Mm -hmm. And the last part is services has to be based on your rights, like the legal rights to services. Mm-hmm. But the most important one, in, at least in my mind, is the fact that any help, any service has to be evidence-based.
2: Right, yeah.
1: And that is essential that we get out because, as I said, for somebody who get their diagnosis first they'll start looking for any type of help and in many ways we've been our worst enemy in the way that we've been talking about interventions we've been talking about it there was a while where we talked about curing autism yeah that was never the intention but it's it's actually almost humorous that a society that deals with people that have communicative uh, difficulties, never learn to be clearer on what we need to do, and insist on using language that confuses people. What we've seen more and more is that we're getting more and more focused on the individual person and not all of this, we have to fix this and we have to fix that and when we're looking at therapies, is it to help somebody or is it to mask the uh, traits of autism? Right. You're not trying to change anybody. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that is something that needs to be very clear. You're trying to help people, you're not trying to change them.
2: Yeah. And I mean, thankfully, the autistic community is speaking up, the adults who, You know, maybe have undergone certain therapies, can speak to their experiences of what it felt like Mm. to be, quote, normalized or told that they're wrong or that something is wrong with them. I mean, so we're learning and it has to start from listening.
1: Yep. I totally agree. It's um, without listening to the, well, there's a mix here between the lived experience of people and the progress that's been made by parents throughout the years and their passion to change things. There's a balance here. You can't just say you only need to listen to the lived experience because the moment you say that, you're losing everybody that doesn't have a vocal way of communicating.
2: True. Yeah.
1: And that, that in my mind is extremely dangerous. So we need to cooperate across that chasm, also.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. So, you know, when thinking about advocacy, there are different aspects. Like, there's a big emphasis on early diagnosis and support, as we're talking about. We've we've discussed inclusion in the classroom. Also, you know, opportunities for employment is a big area of need. And housing, also getting adults set up to live as independently as they can. And I think one thing that oftentimes is not so talked about is mental health. And this underlying issue could be affected if any one of those things that I mentioned above isn't met. You know, we know the unfortunate statistics of anxiety and depression and suicide among the autistic population. So I was just wondering, what is Autism Europe doing to address concerns of mental health?
1: We're part of a few research projects that focuses on that. It's also the, the element of bringing it to the forefront of the political discussion. That uh, there's a disproportional number of people with mental challenges in the autistic uh, community. But there's also an element of somatic health that's passing undetected in this. So I don't necessarily like to say psychological health, but talk on health as Mm. the entire element because access to health, be it mental or somatic, is generally not afforded to people with autism. So bringing this into our research element and, and again, bringing it into the political sphere is extremely important to us.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: So, if you want to change politics, you need statistics, you need numbers. Politicians don't react unless there's a sufficient number of people affected. So, for us, getting numbers behind the topics we're talking about is extremely important. And uh, in doing so, you need to actually get a call it a snapshot of what autism is throughout Europe, which countries have autism-specific legislation, which ones have a plan for where they're going, things like that. But it's also a, a key element that no matter how grand your plans are, unless there is a financial willingness to back that plan, It is totally useless.
2: Right. (laughs) Yes. Unfortunately, money does not grow in trees.
1: Yeah. So when we advocate for change, we also need to make sure that there is financial means to actually do what you're trying to do. And not only that, if we're managing to get things into legislation, there need to be an element that allows people to take somebody to court and say, you're not keeping your de- uh, part of the deal. And that has repercussions on what you can do. So, so what we see is that that element, the legal element doesn't necessarily always exist. Right. So unfortunately, there isn't a single answer when we come talking about autism. Whenever you start talking about one aspect, there's, you get blindsided by another aspect of it that you haven't thought of or you that affects what you're doing. Because everything here is interconnected in one way or another. And it's, it's also elements like trying to get decision makers and, and stakeholders to change how they're doing. But you also need to consider the other end and trying to help parents and people on the spectrum themselves to see that things need to change how they approach things. Because parents have a tendency to try just about any intervention that, that's on this planet. And that's... um Without any sort of thoughts of whether it's smart or not, so unfortunately, I don't have easy answers.
2: Yeah, it's very complex. I can imagine. So, as the president, you have a four-year term, correct? Yeah. Okay, and so it's you started twenty twenty, and you have basically two more years, yeah. right? A little. Yeah. Okay, and now, what are some of your goals that you would like to see completed or at least just started in some form of progress before the end of your term?
1: The one thing that I went to war with, I almost said, was bridging the gap between self-advocates and parents. Trying to show that we need to be one family. Within the autism spectrum, we can't say this is autism or this is autism, depending on where you're standing. So the part that I'm interested in is trying to get people to understand that it doesn't matter whether you're a self-advocate or if you're a parent advocating for your kids. The challenges with autism are the same. The cardinal symptoms of autism is the same, irregardless of, of your functional level. So therefore, it all comes down to how do you help? And in doing so, we need to recognize the individual aspect. So that's been one of the things that I wanted to do. The other one is I want a closer cooperation between the research communities and the autism community. We need to set uh, agenda for where research should be. We need to try and, and, and see where we can get people with autism into clinical trials. If you look at the pharmaceutical industry, every drug that's been tested and approved has been tested out with, on white Anglo-Saxon males aged 30 to 35 there's nothing on women there's nothing on cognitive disabilities there's, there's there's just this uniform group that's tested so how do we know how these drugs works on our population again an element of trying to see where we can set the agenda for research. And I think those two are probably the two most important things that I'm trying to to achieve.
2: Yeah, and there's a commonality there where you're trying to bring people together yep. who might be on...
1: Different sides.
2: Different sides, but still everyone wants the same goal. Everyone wants everyone, autistic people to thrive and have a good quality of life. Yep. So it's just... Reminding them of that.
1: And obviously, the only way that you can achieve that is actually to bring forward examples of good practices, how we do things that that seems to work. Mm -hmm. And also recognizing in all of this that there is cultural differences in how we approach autism. Yeah. If you ask somebody from Spain what they think about the way the Scandinavians organize things, they would basically say that to them, it's a cold way and to deal with things and, and that the person with autism must be very lonely in that setting. Whereas we focuses on the ability to control your own life from our culture and to point out that, there isn't necessarily a conflict in that, but you have to understand in which setting you're actually working.
0: Mm. Hmm.
2: All right, Harold, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to other parents out there who maybe they're also in the same stage that you are? They have an autistic young adult child
1: i almost said learn to communicate on with their language the best way is and this is not a mom's way of doing it or a dad's way of doing it because face it we all do it in our own individual way but it needs to take the child into account and for parents, I think the, the, the number one advice would be to learn the language of the child mm. so that you actually can say, hmm, she doesn't like that, or he's very happy with what you're doing now, because that will allow you to adjust what you're doing. And it will remove, whether it will remove or whether it was just reduce, the frustration that the child feels in never being listened to and never being understood. And also, if you manage to do that, you suddenly have an extremely important tool when you're talking to the authorities on how to build services. Mm. Because once you can say, this is how she reacts, or this is what he means, When he does this, our daughter used the word to go to the bathroom, both because she needed to go to the bathroom or because she wanted to get out of something, a situation that she didn't like. And you got to learn the tiny nuances in that statement in order to to see what's actually important to do. Because you can't run to the bathroom all the time. Something is wrong if that's what she wants to do all the time. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I, I come back to understanding the child.
0: Okay. Great.
2: All right. Well, thank you, Harold. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I look forward to seeing you again at the next Autism Europe Congress.
1: Yes. Dublin in 25. Uh,
2: okay. Every three years, right? Yep. It is. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Autism Europe promotes the exchange of information regarding best practices and lived experiences. As Harold mentioned, all sides need to work together because the end goal is the same, a good quality of life for autistic people and their families our global autism community is a great place to connect with like-minded advocates who also have similar goals. Whether you're autistic yourself and want to share your story with others, or a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one, or a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice, you can join our online global autism community to collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community.
1: You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on
0: iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.